Rant and Rave is brought to you by Andrews Technology Group. Make sure you hit them up at A-N-D-R-E-W-S Technology Group.com. DJs, promoters, small business owners, get your technology and website needs met. Hey, Soka lovers, it's Soka Say So. And this chick. And we're back with episode nine of the special limited series. We have a collection of interviews with people all around the world talking about the global Black Lives Matter movement. In this episode, we're talking to Zakaya Tafari, better known as Soka Dread, about what he sees happening in Toronto and how he's giving back to his community with Black Food Toronto. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Soka lovers, welcome back to the Rant and Rave podcast. I am talking to Zakaya, better known as Soka Dread, out of Toronto to tell us all about what he sees happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, but also race relations in Canada, and tell us a little bit more about how he's been getting involved for years in helping the Black community. So first, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Uh, Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So just so people know, let's give them a little bit of background about you, about what you've been doing in your community, about Black Food Toronto, um, seeing that pop up all over. So let's just give them some information about what that is and how they could get involved. All right. So Black Food Toronto is a Black Food Sovereignty Initiative. Uh, 25 years ago, my dad founded an organization called the African Food Basket as a way to address food insecurities that he uh, discovered through research. Basically, they were looking at when low-income families within um, Toronto were most food insecure. And what he found out that was um, particularly families that were on assistance and um, usually single-parent-headed households were usually very food insecure during the third and fourth week of the month. And so he created this initiative called the African Food Basket, where basically it was a bulk food buying club. At the beginning of the month, you'd buy a share, so either like $25 or $15. And within the third week of the month, you'd get a delivery of fresh produce that were culturally sensitive uh, that almost valued double what you paid because we would buy the food wholesale and basically pass those savings on. And then we moved into engaging youth around food security and getting youth involved in uh, community gardening, urban farming, and just really finding different ways to engage members of our community around uh, food, being healthy, um, and growing food as much as possible. Fast forward 25 years, as we're preparing to celebrate our 25th anniversary, we get hit with COVID. And the city of Toronto reaches out to us, you know, looking at how we can be part of the solutions for our community. And so we launched this initiative called Black Food Toronto, which is basically a online system where folks can sign up to get a free food box, which is filled with over 30 pounds of fresh uh, fruits and vegetables, um, as well as some information. And we've just been on a fundraising uh, spree trying to make it possible that we can offer that to individuals who need it on a regular basis. We started this initiative in April. Between the first month, we had about 80 people signing up a week. And then once May hit, it ballooned uh, and we're in the process of um, securing some more funds to be able to support folks on a regular basis because many do need it on a regular basis. That is wonderful. That's really amazing. And you said, you know, this started with your dad. I know this is like a family affair for you. You're getting your daughter involved. What's that been like seeing her, you know, feel the 
the same passion that you have for feeding the community and taking care of people in the neighborhoods? My daughter's always had a bit of a soft spot for um, homeless people and those who are more or less fortunate than us. Um, so always willing to help others. Um, there's a video that she actually just edited for one of her classes that I'm going to be sharing soon where she kind of gives her perspective on why she felt it was so important. And one of the things that really blew me away that she said in that video was that at the end of the day, these are just people like us. And mm. because they're people like us, they shouldn't be forgotten. And after that, there's a clip of an elderly um, Black man saying, thank you for remembering us. Nice. Aw, that is really that is really important. Um, one of the things that you mentioned is that, you know, her perspective saying that we're all people. These are just people just like us. Circumstances may make us, you know, in different segments of the population, but we are all just people. And I think that has been the the cry of Black Lives Matter. You know, you hear the counter argument. Well, it's like, well, all lives matter. And obviously all lives matter. But until Black Lives Matter, we can't really say that. Right. So. What do you think? I don't know if she's been at all involved. I know she's seeing the news, but are you guys actively talking about it at home, you know, in your in your own spaces of what this means and what this looks like and just kind of sharing that multi-generational perspective? I'm, I mean, for, for sure. My mom, uh, for about 20 years, my mom ran a private African-centered school here in Toronto. So there is no escaping those conversations. And the older my mother gets, the more unapologetic she is. Mm. Uh, I'm a little bit more diplomatic. I, I see a future in politics, so I'm, I'm a little bit mindful of, of how I come across. But I mean, yes. at the end of the day, being raised by parents who realize the importance of furthering our people and doing for our people. You know, when I go to a lot of meetings, I tell folks, you know, there has been a lot of impact due to anti-Black racism, due to systemic oppression, and that I don't necessarily expect those systems that, you know, took advantage of our people or broke our people to be the ones to fix it. You know, many of mm -hmm. them have inherited a system that they don't even necessarily understand. You know, I work with a lot of young social workers who many haven't really seen or engaged Black people until they got into college. You know, and these are individuals that after four or five years of college, they're now working in Black communities, which is very problematic. And I always tell them, you know, there's many of us who we have our own ideas. We have the education. We have the passion. We want to be the ones to create our own solutions. We don't necessarily want to depend on the systems who have been part of causing those problems. And, you know, I can remember a conversation very early when my daughter was in elementary school you know, driving to school, we're literally like two minutes away from pulling up and she drops this heavy question on me. She's like, daddy, you know, why do teachers lie? And I'm like, what? Wow. You know, two minutes away from your school. <laughs> and she goes to Catholic school, by the way. And I'm like, well, what, what do you mean? Let me see if I can, you know, get through this quickly before I got to drop you off. And she kind of broke down in terms of, you know, well, all the pictures of Jesus that she sees are white and blue eyes. But given where his birth was, um, it doesn't make sense that he was a white man and she doesn't understand why they kind of portray him in this way. And, you know, obviously a very loaded question. I'm like, listen, you know, we got to wait till we get home later on to kind of discuss that. But it showed that even from that young age, she had a critical mind and she was willing to challenge things in a respectful way. Um, but she also wasn't going to shy away from the tough conversations and, and, and the tough points. So I'm always glad to have those kind of conversations. Uh, this time around, we're not very involved with any of the protests. Um, one, that's because Black Food Toronto has been keeping us very busy. Two, just because of looking at things from that health perspective. And as I tell a lot of people, you know, there are many different 
ways to be part of the movement. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we can't always criticize those who may not go to every protest. I've definitely taken my daughter to Black Lives Matter protests here in Toronto in the past. Um, I myself uh, went to the anniversary of the Million Man March. So, I mean, I I definitely am involved and get on the ground where possible. But at other times, you know, I have to look at what is the best use of um, my abilities and my skills and also the privilege that I have. And that's one thing that I actually have a lot of conversations with my daughter around is that sometimes when we talk about privilege, we only look at black and white privilege and we don't look at the various types of privilege within the black community. Mm. And so that's something that I also highlight with her that, you know, she's fortunate to be part of a family who can make calls to government officials and get access to certain things and to be able to bring real life solutions to our community. So we definitely look at what's going on. We've been having conversations explaining, you know, the various um, forms of anti-Black racism and the challenges around, you know, how the police treat people um, and specifically how in in America they've been, you know, just murdering and, in my opinion, lynching so much of our brothers and sisters and how we need to be mindful of how these systems are created and how to, you know, whether it's tear them down, dismantle them or reform them. It's, it's not going to be a simple solution, but you have to understand the complexities of the issues. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you touched on just kind of being able to understand it, have the awareness, because here in America, you I don't know if you'd be surprised, but you hear all the time that Canada is kind of like a utopia, right? Everybody is happy. The streets are clean. Like, you know, you get a bag of gold when you cross the border. Um, everything is is presented as though Canada doesn't have these issues. Um, people are a lot more accepting and there's kind of this, this niceness and just cordiality between neighbors. Like, is that give the real perspective, you know, because we're seeing the protests, so there must be an issue, but is it, is it just not in the consciousness? Are people just not aware enough to say, you know what, we have these issues too, or are they just looking at the U S and going, wow, those folks need to fix their systems. Well, I mean, definitely as a proud Canadian, I, I don't shy away from, from wearing that. Um, things are nice. We are very polite here, but in terms of when you're looking at racism, uh, systemic oppression, I would say, you know, the, the issue is very much mirror. Um, our news media doesn't cover it as much. And, you know, even in terms of our, our music, our hip hop and so forth, which is usually what starts to tell these stories and bring some of these issues to the front line, um, it's not as, as received um, or exported. So definitely I would say Americans are not hearing as much of the reality. I mean, we definitely face our own issues, our own challenges, um, around being black and living in our skin and the, the supports and the, the access that we have. You know, a simple example uh, is, is funding. You know, mainstream organizations get millions of dollars, but, you know, grassroots um, organizations that are led by people of color don't get the same support. You know, we get a lot more um, challenges. And just in terms of uh, criminal justice, I would say it, it very much echoes what's happening in the States. I think the only big difference is that, you know, from my understanding, your prison systems are more private, um, and more run for profit, whereas our prisons are still run by the system. But there is benefits to, you know, incarcerating a lot of black bodies um, in these systems. You know, one thing I've complained about is to keep a young man um, locked up. So somebody who's, let's say, under 25, it roughly costs about $100,000 a year, whereas it costs about $7,000 a year to keep that same young man in school. Looking at where, you know, systemically we would rather invest money, you know, 
there's always whenever you hear about like police shootings or gang violence that involve y- young people of color, you know, you hear these these narratives, you know, oh, they don't have an active father involved in their life. Oh, they're high school dropouts. And to me, we never look at fixing what is the cause that leads to them getting into trouble. It's always reacting to, OK, these are, quote unquote, problematic individuals and we need to do this to them. We need to do that to them. Um, and not realizing that, you know, we need to shift where the money is being invested. And to me, that's one of the biggest things that I see coming out of these um, protests that is happening around Black Lives Matter and this whole movement. It's it's about making sure that systems are responding in the right ways. And by simply looking at doing that, you would address a lot of the systemic issues. And to me, that's where the challenge comes in, is that these systems don't necessarily want to change or they're so profitable to some. Um, especially in the States, you know, it's all about money from what I see. You know, if you have a strong lobbying group, you know, you can get your way, even if it doesn't meet the needs of the majority of people. And that's one of the challenges, especially, you know, given who's in office and who he has leading things. Uh, so up here in, in, in Canada, you know, we have a liberal government that seems to be a little bit more open to change and accountability. But again, dismantling some of these systems is very challenging and they need that consistent push you know when i saw the first couple protests happening you know i was wondering you know south of the border how long is this going to go on for and is it going to be a you know one or two day thing and then it's going to the new cycle is going to end and then when i realized that folks are really committed to this and this was going to be an ongoing piece you know i got a little bit excited saying you know maybe folks are going to take it a lot more serious now it's not just going to be you know a 72 hour news cycle and then go from there. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm saddened to see the continued loss of life, but I'm glad to see that folks are really coming together and unifying, um, not just in America, not just in individual states, but really globally around this issue that, you know, our lives matter, that there are problems within the system, that the system is broken and it's failing us. And it's about time that we seriously have that conversation on every level. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things that I saw come out of uh, Toronto was, I think it was, it was this week, the week of Juneteenth, uh, there was a protest where a group made 27 demands. And like you mentioned, among the demands, you know, hopefully by the time this comes out, I could put into the show notes what all 27 were. I don't have them all yet. But one of the demands was defunding the police. Like you said, reallocating those funds to things that can help actually prevent people from getting into situations where police might be needed, but also demilitarizing the police, um, ending racial profiling, reducing the scope of police. What do you think, you know, if, if these demands are met, like you said, this is a tough thing to try to dismantle. What would you want to have, have policing look like in Toronto, in Canada, globally? Um, I mean, I think there's different ways to look at things and there are different ways to address things. So one of the biggest misconceptions is that I think a lot of folks feel like the idea of defunding the police means <clears throat> people think that defunding the police means that, you know, there's not going to be any police. There's not going to be law and order. It's going to be lawlessness. It's not that. It's looking at how do the police currently operate? How do they respond? And what is being invested? You know, a lot of money is spent. I was just hearing the other day that, you know, we spend almost $13 million a year um, paying salaries to officers who are relieved of duty because of investigations. You know, that's definitely money that could be invested differently. And when you look at especially mental health, that's a huge area where I find, at least in Toronto, that's where a lot of brothers and sisters end up getting 
um, killed or really hurt by police when they're responding to various issues. And sometimes it's that you don't need six individuals who, you know, have their guns out, you know, and seem very threatening responding to somebody who is not well. You know, perhaps you simply need somebody who can calm that individual down, have a conversation and get them to the right types of support. So in terms of defunding the police, that is definitely something I support. And again, policing doesn't look at the root cause. So you're looking at youth violence or gang violence. The police will respond, oh, you know, these individuals, they're threatening, they have guns, they may be involved in a shootout, they may be involved in the drug trafficking game. But let's take a step back and look at what got them there, mm-hmm. you know. And if we invest money into early interventions, into individuals who seem like they are poised to get into this lifestyle down the road, is that going to, one, address some of those challenges and, two, ultimately save money? So a lot of the work I do with advocacy and, you know, challenging governments, it's about being able to make the case and using data to say, if you... If you invest into an intervention here at this price point, we're going to save this amount of money, public money, down the road. You know, if you invest in a family at an early age and you help that family be a healthy family unit, they have the right supports, the children are getting the supports they need, the parents are getting the supports they need to either stay together or to co-parent as individuals, down the road, all three individuals involved will need less support and will lean on the system more. But if those families don't get any support and down the road, you know, things are still not healthy, you know, so now the child feels like nobody at home loves them. So now they're going out on the streets, they're doing different things. Dad is abusive to mom. Mom is going through this, that, and the other. Everybody's going to have to then rely on more supports. Whereas, again, if we help strengthen that family unit from early and get them to operate in a more functional way, lean on community more, which to me is our historic way of doing things, those systemic interventions are not going to be as needed down the road. And that's why I feel that the idea of defunding the police and looking at how they function, how they act, is something that definitely needs to change. And I'm glad that that conversation is happening, not just here, but globally. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that gets me about the fact that this is global, you know, that Black Lives Matter anti-racism is global, the thing that gets me about that means Black people around the world are having to deal with these issues. Other than, you know, major parts of Africa, which, you know, there's generational and institutional racism in a different way. But other than there, for the most part, we are being treated this way around the world. And while it's presented in the news a lot more in the U.S., this global uprising is really because this is happening everywhere. And that to me is very a a scary realization. Well, I mean, if. If you look at the influence that America has typically had, it, it's been global. And it's not just around military. It's not just around, you know, corporate and, and, and capitalistic um, ways of, of living. But it's it's the different forms of culture. And so the more that America has been, in my opinion, racist and anti-Black, that is echoed across the world, you know, in terms of how certain deals come together. When you, when countries have to go for aid and they're hitting up the World Bank and stuff like that, there's a lot of strings that come with that. And those strings mirror anti-Black racism and different forms of oppression. So that, that hate is, is definitely carried on. And there's something that I've referred to as the Trump effect in that, you know, different world leaders and different individuals who've seen the lawlessness and disregard for the office that, you know, the American president has had and have said, well, you know, if that can happen in America, that can happen in other places. 
And so I feel a lot of this systemic oppression has actually increased over the last couple of years since he's taken office because that right-wing movement has actually been um, mirroring and echoing all across the world. You know, individuals who were involved in his campaign were very involved in a lot of campaigns in, in England and Europe and many other places um, outside of North America. And so to me, that there's been this idea that, you know, folks feel challenged in terms of how things have been historically <clears throat> and they're afraid of change. And it, it's interesting that, you know, we've now hit this turning point where, you know, folks globally are saying Black Lives Matter and it, it has them in fear and realizing that, you know, change has to come and, and the Black Lives Matter issue, it's no longer something that is solely important just to Black people, just to people of color, just to people of African descent. You know, individuals all over of many different backgrounds and culture are realizing that they're not going to stand for this. They're, they're accepting that and, and owning it up and speaking to it. And that needs to happen in this global climate. You know, we all play various roles and when the system is broken, it's broken for everybody, not just one group of people. It's a global issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things we've seen in 2020 is, especially with COVID, um, when something happens in one part of the world, it definitely could have an impact in another part of the world. And so we do have to pay attention and be mindful of the fact that we are a global community and that we all have to have respect for each other if we want to thrive and succeed. And the younger generation, you know, probably around your daughter's age, they have so much access to the internet, to media, to television, that they could see things happening in other parts of the world as well. So I know for me, I have friends who, who are around the globe. And so when something happens to a particular racial group or a nationality, I, I feel a personal connection to that because I know somebody who's, who's suffering at the hands of that. Mm -hmm. And I think hopefully that will, will move us forward, you know, realizing, hey, look, <laughs> okay, a pandemic happens to everybody. <laughs> you know, this is something we all have to pay attention to. We all have to, you know, look out for each other and share resources to combat this. Well, we have a similar disease with racism and we, we all need to come together to fight that too. And, and that's, that's exactly what needs to happen. You know, I believe it was just in the last couple of weeks that uh, the Canadian government actually um, acknowledged that anti-black racism is a health issue. Um, I'm glad to hear that because that means that there's certain funding that will eventually start to flow to respond. Because anytime there is something that is considered and identified as a health issue, it means that there will be um, finances and government supports to address it. It's just the, the, the waiting game is on to see what that's going to look like, um, how willing they are to look at changing policies. And that's something that I, I always stress to folks within community that, you know, it's great to have that passion um, and, and, and turn that anger into passion and into action. But we have to be strategic. We have to understand how these systems work and how to, you know, whether it's combat or dismantle them. And that takes a little bit more time and a little bit more nuance. And sometimes the passion doesn't really allow for that. The one thing I've been doing for many years and a lot of my friends, they kind of give me that big up is that I, I love politics. I know that that's where a lot of decisions are made. Um, and I understand more and more that policy is also an important part of politics. You know, it's not just about um, the president and who is your mayor and who's your head of state. It's looking at who are the actual lawmakers um, 
that put together the various laws, that put together various policies that the governments have to follow, and that y'all need to be very mindful of voting for those people as well. And in Canada, you know, we have um, similar situations in terms of looking at who are the bureaucrats and who gets those positions where they get to make those policies, make the recommendations, make the laws, or change those laws. And, you know, when you look at anti-Black racism, another form of it is keeping members of our community out of those positions and mm-hmm. not understanding what those places are, how important they are. You know, from a young age, I've always been telling young people, get involved in politics, understand the issues. Many times, because in the community I live in, it's a lot of newcomers, um, generation after generation. I've been in the same area for over 18 years, but it's a transitional space where a lot of newcomers coming in from various parts of the world come in. And they kind of get themselves situated and then move to different parts where they can build smaller communities. And the most important thing is understanding what our political issues are, what are the various forms of government. And sometimes it means educating young people so that those young people can go and inform their parents and encourage their parents to vote um, in ways that's going to benefit them in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is a major takeaway for for anyone listening is really getting involved in politics. Uh, sometimes we see it as, especially here, there's a lot of apathy towards voting and towards being part of the process because, oh, that's not going to change anything. And I've been saying that as well. Like, we we need to vote. We need to be present. We need to be in the jury. Like, we need to stop avoiding jury duty. We need to sit on those on those cases and, and help be part of the process to really try to balance the system out. Um, what do you hope? You know, 2020 is halfway through and man, we've had a lot of things happen. (laughs) What do you hope will happen by the end of this year? You know, as far as just making making moves in that awareness and consciousness, what do you hope we get out of all of these situations? I mean, first and foremost, my simple answer is that come November, Y'all get a new president. (laughs) Um, First first and foremost, I mean, I I have no ability to vote, but definitely when I see things that I can encourage, you know, my American followers to better understand the issues um, and and, and the complexity around this upcoming election, because, you know, elections, usually it's it's, you have to pick the lesser evil. So Mm -hmm. let's have a a better way of putting that. Um, And it's, it's hard, you know. People make a lot of promises. Can they actually carry them through? That's the challenging part. But the one thing that's been very encouraging is seeing that a lot of folks are realizing that it's not just about who is the president. You know, it's looking at the Senate. It's looking at the House. And I think that is what's most critical is understanding, you know, the importance of knowing who your police commissioner is and who is going to be, Mm -hmm. you know, the district attorneys and so forth. There's so much different pieces that need to be understood. But I feel like especially in America, more of those conversations are happening. Folks are taking things more serious. Folks are becoming more unified. So, I mean, this whole idea of being woke um, that's really taken over social media in the last couple couple of years, I think it's, it's coming to head and it's allowing us to be more involved, to be more vocal, um, and to really unify. And I think that's what's the most important. And, you know, even just simply this, this podcast that we're having right now, you know, we're two individuals who have met in the land of Soka, um, I think literally at sea. And, you know, all these years later, we're having a conversation from two different countries talking about the same issues that are affecting our people um, in our respective countries and globally. So I think more of that needs to happen. We need to look at how we can encourage more leadership within the Black community, um, more voices involved in media such as this. 
um, and and finding young people who have a passion for various things and collectively and supporting them as a community. That's one thing that I feel is very important. And sometimes I take some backlash in that I challenge our people a lot. I acknowledge that systemic racism and oppression exists, but I'm privileged and fortunate to come from a family that have been part of creating solutions for most of my life. And so I know what is possible as a black individual. Um, you know, I tell people I've only worked like about five jobs because most of the time I create my own job. I look at something that I can take a skill that I have and leverage it to benefit my people. And I think that we need to see more of that happening um, and supporting people to get into various positions of office, get into various positions within institutions, but also keep them grounded. You know, there's a term that's used here that you know, a lot of times by folk, by the time folks get into politics or they get a high position in a company, they become, quote unquote, whitewashed. And mm -hmm. usually I find the reason is because the path that they have to go on um, to get into those positions, it pulls them more and more away from community or community doesn't always get to embrace them or support them throughout those processes. And I think if we had more of that happening, you know, we see a young person who's passionate, he's vocal, he understands politics. Let's support that individual and eventually get him into office and then once he's there continue to keep him accountable mm -hmm. because if we don't do that that's what other individuals are doing when we look at trump he literally brought in all of his people whether they had credentials or not you know he unapologetically did that so we need to do the same thing we need to look at you know what are the various positions and functions that we need within community you know oftentimes i look at you know what's going on online and i see you know we we almost make fun of and ridicule high education and folks who are doing well in school and doing well educationally, but we need those types of individuals. And at the end of the day, we created universities. We were the first to do that. So we should not be shying away from higher education and so forth um, and buying into these mystiques that they kind of put onto us from slavery days that, you know, we're dumb, we're buffoons, this, that, and the other. No, we are one of the brightest individuals ever created as a people. And I think we need to really reclaim that and look at how we can use that <clears throat> that understanding of knowledge and and spirituality to really take us into the next um, you know millennial. Because to me, this is a turning point, and it's a very critical time. And we really need to look at who is doing what and how we best support them to move forward. Absolutely, absolutely, and in the spirit of supporting. Tell people how they can get involved with Black Food Toronto, how they can donate, how they can reach out, share the information. You know, we've got listeners around the world. So how can they get involved to support what you are doing to really create food equity? So Black Food Toronto, it's a food sovereignty initiative, which is basically our way of addressing some of the systemic challenges that we see our community facing around food in terms of what kind of food they have access to. Um, in Toronto, there's a term that we use of a food desert, meaning that, you know, based on the community that you live in, do you have walking, can you walk to a store um, or a business that can provide you with fresh, healthy food? Mm -hmm. So Black Food Toronto wanted to bring food directly to people's doors. Our focus is seniors and um, single parent households, um, making sure that they have access to fresh produce. There's other organizations doing similar types of works, um, food banks, uh, but they're more focused on non-perishables, which often is a lot of um, processed foods, foods mm -hmm. that are high in salt and stuff like that, which are not the most healthy for our people. 
Whereas in our food boxes, every food box that we put out has included mangoes, avocado, sweet potato. Um, if you come mm-hmm. from the islands and you know what mangoes are like, it's it takes you out of your situation for a while, gives you a sense of happiness, a sense of community. So definitely when you go to blackfoodtoronto.com, there's two options. You can either request help or you can give help. It's really that simple. Um, folks who need it, they fill out a form where we ask them some questions just to get a better understanding of who they are, um, as well as collect some data that can help further um, our mission in terms of addressing food insecurities. Um, and you sign up and you're able to, to get this box delivered to you. Folks who want to donate, there's different options. They can donate. If you're Canadian, you can donate through a direct interact transfer um, from your bank, or you can also go on to our website. We have a PayPal link and you are able to make a one-time or a monthly donation there and support this cause. One thing that I do want to say is that we've realized that this work needs to be bigger than just this initiative that we've launched. And so I've actually been taking lead in advocating to create a Black food center here in Toronto, which will be like a one-stop space that will address the various food needs um, from simply packing and distributing these baskets that we're talking about to processing um, non-perishable donations, but also a space that can grow food, where we can cook food, and we can also do the research um, and look at starting to address policy changes. Um, This pandemic has really taken a, a lot of us off of the working front. And so as a result, folks may not have the financial resources to be able to um, prioritize healthy food. And it's going to be like that for a while as we slowly open things back up um, and get back to work. So it's going to take a lot. And we want to make sure that throughout that whole process, folks are eating and being healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you know, having access to food, but also you are trying to make sure that it's culturally specific. That is very important. Uh, Speaking of culture. (laughs) <laughs> we know that you are on the soca scene you are on the carnival scene in toronto what are you looking forward to getting back to once things open up safely what are you looking forward to in terms of just soca and carnival and culture <laughs> um everything <laughs> <clears throat> uh yeah i mean this year definitely was looking forward to getting back on the uber soca cruise celebrating that that momentum um, that's been happening over the last couple of years. I haven't been on the last few, so I've definitely missed that. But I mean, 2020, I work with a, a company called Caribbean Vibrations. Um, I've recently become a correspondent with them. I was really happy to kick off my year going to Dominica and being able to take in their carnival and learn about Bouillon music and see how amazing they, they were as a people. So I'm definitely excited to see when things open back up. I'll be honest, I am a bit skeptical, so I definitely want to see things open back up and ensure that things are safe. But mm-hmm. the biggest reason I got involved in this and continue to do it is because I want to ensure that this culture exists when my daughter becomes of age, that she's mm-hmm. able to embrace it and have her own time in it and her children and so forth. You know, quick backstory around me, you know, growing up, I was very, I was very into music. My dad was a musician. My family was big into music, but as I got into those teen years, I was very into hip hop. I was big into Master P and No Limit and, you know, was singing every anthem that they had coming out. Um, But it's when I started to find back my Trinidadian and Guyanese culture and got involved in the soca scene, it was just blissful happiness. You know, it's a chance to leave the craziness of the day-to-day, the nine-to-five, the systemic racism and so forth, and just be in happiness and culture and, and 
vibes. And I've realized with COVID impacting us the way we did that that is much needed. You know, we've taken it online as much as possible, but it's just not the same. Um, So I'm really looking forward to traveling, seeing more countries, experiencing more carnivals, experiencing more different food, um, visiting local markets, and getting back to sharing that Caribbean culture and building that, that, that movement that I just love so much. Wow. He is really doing some amazing things to the community. And in this moment, there are so many people who need food. And I love that he's giving fresh food out. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's been doing a lot of work with Black Food Toronto. But what I really love is that he's making this a multi-generational issue. You know, his parents instilled these values into him and he's doing that to his daughter and she's getting involved and being creative with it. And I love to see that. I love to see that they're passing those values on. Yeah. And don't think I didn't hear him say that he's thinking about making some political moves. Uh Uh-huh. So really effectuating the future. I see you. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll see what comes from that. But yes, he has that well on his radar and he's setting himself up to be a great candidate. Obviously, he's very involved in his community and doing the best for really underserved areas. Listen, I know him as Soka Dread, and so I am definitely ready to rave with Soka Dread. Uh, sorry, can I can I rave right now? You can absolutely rave. You need my permission. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> this week, I am really taking from his uh, teaching the, the, the youth and looking towards the future. And I choose LFS Music Brighter. Tell them! Just remember, remember how far we came. Taking on the world, knocking down barricade. All we have and then do it again, again, again. Hey, yeah, yeah, we take a loss. We come up short. Not for them go smile in your face, but them rather see you struggle. Them what you lose. I know I could hear them talking, but they can't stop way. Watch them in their face and say,
really, really great song. First of all, you know LFS, I love them representing for New York and yes. for Trinidad. And just, they always come with positive vibes, positive energy. And that song about just the future is looking brighter. I think that you hit the nail on the head again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought we needed some sweet vocals. So got to call on LFS music. Absolutely. I mean, yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. And it's recent, right? They just did that. Yes. I would love to know what everybody else is doing currently. Well, what are you doing to educate the future? What are you doing about your own personal future? Come on, please tell me your action steps. I need to take some notes. Mm-hmm. But make sure you drop us a line. Follow us individually. Follow Soka Say So on all social media or go to SokaSaySo.com. Make sure you're following Dish Chick on all social media or go to D-Y-S-C-H-I-C-K.com. And subscribe to the Rant and Ray podcast. Okay, bye.